What's it about? It is about this question. Shall we continue to live just as we did before we became Christians? That's the question. Okay, somebody says they've become a Christian. And the question is, is that person going to live just as they used to before they became a Christian? Are they going to be as selfish, as self-centered, as uh, um, complaining, as uh, malicious, as whatever, um, immoral as they were before. Now the Bible says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our complete forgiveness. The Bible says that if we died on the, uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our complete forgiveness. And when it says complete, it means that. So if we sin, we continue to be completely forgiven. So we can come back to the Lord again and 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 say, Lord, I've sinned again, please forgive me. And the Lord will not say, well, I have to tell you, you're running out of credit here. You know, you're into the, uh, you're getting near your credit limit of forgiveness. The Lord never says that. Uh, what Christ did on the cross for us is, if you like, unfathomable. Uh, so uh, we keep on being forgiven. And the Bible says, yeah, that's the situation we'll be in. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the question is, shall we then, does that mean that we could happily continue to sin as we did before? So, the facility is there to be forgiven and forgiven and forgiven. So, shall we just sin and sin and sin? And, you know, that's fine. And our lives be unchanged. And that's the, that's the question that he's referring to. Shall we, what shall we say then? This is Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So, the grace is God's kindness in forgiving and being merciful to us again and again. Shall we just keep ratcheting that debt up? Grace may increase. I think you have to say it has a certain sort of logic to it, doesn't it? It has a certain tempting logic. Well, I can carry on sin because I know I'm going to be forgiven. But you see that Paul says, is that, shall we do that? Is that the correct understanding? By no means. See those words, by no means, or if you've got a different translation, it might say, God forbid, or definitely not, or something like that. It's absolutely mm, aghast at the idea that Christians should just continue on in sin unchanged. So he said no, and I'm sure he's going to say more about why he's saying no, and that's what he does do. What does he say? So I can tell you some things he doesn't say. He does not say, if you carry on, you won't be forgiven. He doesn't say that there is some sort of limit to the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. So I think many of us breathe a sigh of relief to know that. We can keep coming back to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. 
And he doesn't set any extra conditions on forgiveness. He doesn't say, oh, well, you can only be forgiven if you try, if, if something else, apart from confessing sin. He doesn't say, well, you're actually only forgiven if you're really trying hard. You know, Jesus doesn't forgive slackers. He doesn't put it that way. He doesn't say, it's down to you to make an effort. That's not the way he approaches it. And he doesn't say, well, you can only be half forgiven. So there's a, a teaching about purgatory, which says that we're forgiven a certain amount in this life, but we need to have the rest of it we need to be punished in heaven a certain amount to get rid of, to, to be cleaned up. You know, so we're only sort of a certain percentage forgiven and the rest of it, we have to, be, we have to pay our, our dues after death. He doesn't say that. Grace is grace. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives to the uttermost the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. You could be a rapist, you turn to the Lord, confess your sin, you are forgiven. You could be a murderer, you turn to the Lord, confess your sin, you are forgiven. You could be a child molester and turn to the Lord in repentance and ask for forgiveness of your sin and you will be forgiven. That forgiveness is staggering and complete. He answers the question in terms of union with Christ. And we had a, a, a good look at that last week and we're going to continue in the same way this week. Union with Christ. Here's the picture that Jesus himself gave. Do you remember that Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. You abide in me, you remain in union with me. My life flows into your life and that's the way that you're fruitful. And that's something that Jesus said about being joined to him. Are you... In my youth, I used to sing a, a song which said, joined to the vine, joined, oh dear, can't remember it now, joined to the something as a branch to the tree, joined to the vine as a branch to the tree. Steve might know it, because he might have sung it as well. No, no, that's right, okay. Um, Cleansed by the word that he's spoken to me. The rest of the words will come to me during the course of the week. Um, so, but Anyway, the idea of union with Christ. And I'm going to take us back into Romans chapter 5 because I think we need to remind ourselves of this. I know some of you uh, that are listening weren't here last week. And so I will take us back into Romans 5 because he says the union with Christ is not unprecedented. There is an existing union with Adam. And he compares the two. So I'm going to compare, just take us through this again. Adam and his person and work, and Jesus Christ and his person and work, and the fact that Adam's one trespass, trespass in this case meaning having an explicit command and going against it, 
this one trespass of Adam affects many people. And this is what it says in chapter 5. I need the piece of paper that I've got on the projector because I can't see my notes otherwise. So let's please refresh our minds in this. So in verse 16, for example, chapter 5, verse 16, it says... The gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So I'm reminding us that the one sin of the one man Adam affected everybody else. And as it says there, it brought condemnation. Condemnation is a legal status in which the judge says you are guilty and treats you as guilty whatever that may mean uh, in terms of well, in all sorts of ways uh, not least what we think in our own minds about how we are we have a sense of being condemned so in Adam his sin brings condemnation and Jesus Christ it's uh, He speaks of one act of righteousness, meaning what Jesus did on the cross, and that affects many people. And in the same verse, verse 16, it says, does it not? The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. And this too is a legal status. It says this is how the judge views these people. I'm going to write here legal status. This is how the people are treated as righteous and innocent. And of course our problem as human beings is that we still are thinking that we're condemned and we feel guilt. Uh, And yet the Lord says if you come and confess your sins because of what Jesus Christ did you are set free, you are forgiven, you are justified. And the Christian is brought into a state of justification, not because of actually how he's behaved, but because of what Christ has done. And we are justified, as it says, by, by Jesus Christ through faith. Now, let's take this parallel a bit further in verse 19. Not only is the legal status changed, but it has an effect on character and behavior. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So you see there's a there is an effect for Adam, not only bringing people into a legal condition, but their actual character and behaviour patterns. Uh, We are born, if we're born in Adam, we are born as sinners. Nobody has to make us that. That's just the way we enter this world. 
And I remind, I remind us of that because the gospel sort of starts at that point, doesn't it? If we don't accept that we are sinners, then what Jesus Christ did has very little relevance to us at all. Because what he did is he came into the world to save sinners. And as you're sitting there, you might be thinking, well, I know quite a number of people who are sinners, but I'm not one of them. Uh, Now, if you're saying that, uh, I want to try and persuade you otherwise. This passage from the Bible is saying otherwise. It says that if you're human, you're one of Adam's children, and he... committed this act of sin right at the beginning and Paul says this has affected all the rest of us ever since. If you like, it is like if your great-grandfather emigrated to Australia, you would be born and uh, and the family stayed there because of what he did in his emigration to Australia. Uh, The rest of his family would be Australians. He emigrated there. They've been an immigrant family. And our great, great father Adam emigrated to sin and that's where we've been born so I point that out that we are sinners and if you don't believe it from the Bible I do suggest you just look inside your own character for a little while and see if you yourself actually fail to keep the moral code that you set for yourself So we're all sinners condemned and by behaviour and character. And Paul develops this parallel with Jesus Christ and he says in verse 19, I think as we read a moment ago, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And he's saying here that the work of Jesus Christ is not only to generate a legal condition but actually to change people so that they become righteous in their character and behavior so that it goes as deep as this this is why Christ died this is what he achieved as he died so when not only condemnation not only the status of condemnation not only the character of sinfulness but the whole issue of death, which Paul mentions, chapter 5, verse 12, sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin. Death came to all men. And then verse 14, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. And verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, etc. So there's a connection between sin and death. said right at the beginning, the day you sin you will surely die. This connection is something like a a, a threat. If you sin you will die, and the threat is carried out, or you will die, and you do die. And as well as that threat carried out, there is the sense of sin being a reigning power. I'm not sure that we're used to thinking of sin like this, but Paul doesn't seem to have any problem with it at all. He says 
on several occasions, death reigns. Death is like a king with a kingdom, with a realm, and he, death, it's almost like making him into a person, death reigns over the human race, reigns over the children of Adam, and has power over the children of Adam. It's a reigning power. And corresponding to that, Jesus Christ brings life. And the verse for that is verse 19, where it says, is that right? Is it verse 19? I think it's verse 21. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's there in verse 19, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I pause to think what is meant by eternal life. And to say that in the Bible eternal life is not just quantity, it's also quality. So eternal life is not just life that goes on and on and on and on and on. It isn't just that quantity, it is quality. Eternal life is life, as it were, that has the quality of God about it. It's wholesome life, it's holy life, it's life that is unpolluted, it's pureness of life. So there is a quality to eternal life as well as a quantity to it. And in one place Jesus says this is eternal life to know you uh, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So not only is there that, there's a relationship aspect of it as well. And I remind you that Adam brought death, sin reigned in death, and Jesus Christ brings eternal life and grace reigns. There's a sort of power structure there too. So just reminding us then of what it said in chapter 5, we have these two, uh, these two people, these two figures, Adam, and because of his person and work, uh, there is this realm of condemnation and sin and death. It's a realm with powers operating, and that is what people are born into by nature. And then we have Jesus Christ. And the one act of righteousness or his obedient life focused and culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, which is a realm of justification and righteousness and life, along with the reigning powers that attend those things. So that's to remind us, not only of chapter 5 and perhaps of what we did last week, but to try and draw that out a little bit. So I stopped to say, is that reasonably clear? I don't say, is that reasonably easy? I'm saying, is it reasonably clear? And I see some people nodding. They might be dead to the world. But we, uh, so Let us now focus, if we can, on how, where this goes into Romans chapter 6. And thinking... He's not thinking of Adam now so much as how this works out in relation to Jesus Christ. So we're thinking of 
the one man, his person and work, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and how this spills over to include and to involve all the people who belong to him. So let us first of all try to work through what this says about Jesus Christ and then we'll see how this works through into what it says about the people who belong to him. So let's assume that we're on the right track if we follow verse 18, where uh, this is chapter 5, verse 18, the result of one act of righteousness. So I'm going to think in terms of one act of righteousness. The act of righteousness seems to include quite a bit, uh, so... Let's think of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and raised from the dead and say that's one act with perhaps two, two sides to it or something like that. Let's trace that through in Romans 6. So I've put the verses. Let's see whether they fit. So chapter 6, Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So it's at least saying that Jesus died. So I put that down as something about Jesus. He died. We were buried with him, so he was buried. I should. So he died and he was buried. He was raised, verse 4. Christ was raised from the dead. So, raised, verse 4. Verse 5. We have been united with him or co-planted with him in his death. There's another reference to his death. And then, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So, that's another reference to resurrection. And am I right to put two R's in the middle of it? Yes, good, that's comforting. Right, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. So that's another thing that happened to Jesus. He was crucified. I say it's another thing. It's another way of saying the same thing. He was crucified. And in verse 8, it says... We died with Christ, so again it says he died, and we will live with him, so it says that he lives. Verse 9, Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Now it's worth noting that. So the death that he died cannot be repeated. He is no longer in the position that death looms over him. And death no longer has lordship over Christ. It has no mastery. So where shall I put that? Let me see. He cannot, he was raised from the dead. Death no longer has mastery over him. Let's put it in here. Uh, he was raised into death 
lessness. Or he was raised out of death's rule. Shall I put that? Let's go a little bit further. Uh, Verse 10. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. So I've put that in there, verse 10. He died to sin. And verse 10. The life he lives, he lives to God. And I think that includes most, if not all, the descriptions of what happened to Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like us to stop and ponder that for a little while, because I think there's some quite deep questions here. Let's focus on this, where it says, The death he died, he died to sin once for all. And I'd like to ask the question, what does that mean? The death he died, he died to sin. How so? So the idea of being dead to the world, we did with the children. Dead to the world means unresponsive, taking no notice, not doing what you are asked to do. Dead to sin. Jesus unresponsive to sin, not doing what sin asked him to do. Something like that. Wasn't he always dead to sin? Wasn't he always dead to sin? Wasn't he always unresponsive to sin? Did he ever take notice of sin? I think we'd have to say no, he didn't. That's the bit that set me thinking. And we'll think about it as far as as far as we can manage. What about thinking about this? Our normal life Without being Christians, we are dead in sins. And the normal death that somebody would, would die without becoming a Christian is to die in sin, isn't it? That's right, isn't it? If you, if you carry on in sin, you're walking a path which has a, an end result. It, 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 it has a sort of fulfillment and the wages of sin is death. And so that death would be to die in sin. And I, I think Paul is has an idea that I'm I'm suddenly struggling to to think along with him, but I think he has an idea of death, sort of closing the trap forever on sinful humanity. It's the it's the final clang of the door of the prison, if you like. It's the final clang as the trap, the jaws of the trap close over over a sinner. It's condemnation reaching its fullest point in a sense, isn't it? Death closes the trap door forever. It's the final blow. It's sin's maximum power. When Jesus died, he experienced the power of sin then at its maximum the full intensity of what sin's power could do when Jesus died he died to sin 
If you imagine sin sort of having, giving, you know, give me your best shot. And this is sin's best shot. And Jesus takes sin's maximum punch. And then he shrugs it off. Jesus faces sin's demands, sin's threats, sin's, in a sense, legitimate power. Because if you sin, you will die. It follows, logically, in a sense, legitimately. Jesus faced that, and the demands were met, and the threats were defeated, and the legitimate powers were neutralized by this massive act of obedience. And I think somewhere in there is this idea that in a final, definitive, world-shaking way, when Jesus died on the cross, he died to sin. So that sin is now left trembling like a jelly in the corner, as it were. That Jesus, in his death, kills sin. That Jesus, in his death, gives sin the knockout blow. And from then on, uh, he's dead to sin. Sin has got not a thing to say to Jesus. Something like that. Let's take the other statement that goes along with it. The death he died, he died to sin. The life he lives, he lives to God. The life he lives, he lives to God. He lives to God. And then I ask the same question. Well, how, what does that mean? Because didn't Jesus always live to God? Didn't Jesus always live to God? Didn't Jesus always live in communion with his heavenly Father? Isn't it? Didn't Jesus say the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he does? Uh, the Son doesn't do a single thing without, without it being an expression of the Father and so on. Uh, didn't he always live to God? And yet he says that there is something, some sort of step change, some sort of vast achievement as Jesus dies on the cross and rises again. So, I was trying to think about this. The life he lives, he lives to God. This is his resurrection life. This is the new step change in the life of Jesus. He came subject to, he came into this world of weakness and sin with a, a body like our sinful body, and he died on the cross defeating the power of sin, and he's risen again in a new and glorious body. Uh, so, didn't he always live to God? Well, he did, but he previously, he was, as it were, operating in the territory of sin. Sin, if you could think of sin as, as being a, 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 I don't know, a, a power with, a, like an occupying power, like the Nazis in France or something like that, uh, in the uh, wartime, and Jesus is behind enemy lines, as it were, operating in 
in that realm, uh, in the territory of death, in the territory of sin, uh, with sin, as it were, hanging over him. And that's the, the power that he was working under. And this is how I'm trying to think it through. He, in his death and resurrection, achieved a step change in that situation. He defeated death and sin, and he is now, if you like, he's defeated the occupying powers, and there's a victory at work. There is a victory achieved. He is now no longer operating subject to death. And in the realm, as it were, of sin, he is operating in the sphere of victory. He is now operating in the territory where death cannot touch him and hasn't a single thing to say. He is operating in the territory of deathlessness. He is operating, having achieved a victory and simply awaiting the full outcome of that victory in the future. He is operating in the sphere of life. And that, I'm, as you can see, and as maybe you think you are too, sort of struggling to get our heads around this, but he says that Jesus Christ died to sin and lives to God. So he dealt with sin, and now he's in a different sphere and realm of activity to how it used to be. And this is the, this is the point. Here's the thing. Christ is dead to sin and alive to God. And Paul says it is absolutely essential that we get some sort of hold of that because that affects us. Do you see? That what he did, his person and work, brings a step change into our lives. So let's read it again and just see whether you don't agree with me. This is, this is what he's saying. Shall we go on sinning? Well, we won't. Because what Jesus achieved comes into our lives. It says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or, don't you know, that all of us who are baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. So whatever his death did, affects us. We were baptized into his death. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we, by the glory of the Father, we too, we too live in newness of life. We have a new quality, a new something, a new life. Verse 5, we were united with him like this in his death. We will be united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. So I think he's saying that this, uh, the place where sin dwells in us is on its way out. There will be a new body. I think that's what he means. Uh, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anybody who has died has been freed from sin. We have moved over into the realm where the 
where sin and death do not reign, they do not reign over Jesus Christ, and because we're in him, they do not reign over us. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying it is absolutely essential that we get sufficient hold of this, that we can start thinking of this as it affects us. Now I must say, either I'm making this terribly hard work, unnecessarily, or it is quite a hard thing to get our heads round, but he says, well, even if it's hard, it is actually quite essential. If we fail to think this sort of way, we will be missing out on a whole chapter, if you like, of the way the Christian life operates. Hmm. And let me summarize it in a couple of ways, and then I think we've probably had enough to chew on. Uh, number one, thinking. He says, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I pause on that word, count yourself. It is one of Paul's favorite words in Romans. Uh, reckon, to be reckoned righteous, to be counted righteous. And he says, <coughs> God does this. He counts you in a certain way, excuse me. <coughs> and you need to count yourself dead to sin. Now this, seems to me, is an act of faith. Because as I said last week, although you're all incredibly beautiful people, I can't, by looking at you, tell that you are alive with Christ and dead to sin. It doesn't make a huge amount of difference to your appearance. You don't glow with, you know, glow in the dark or and they'll float in mid-air, not having, and there's not a single person having a trouble sort of remaining in their seat because they're so elevated and ethereal or anything like that. Uh, you can't tell by looking. And actually, for the Christian, you can't tell by looking inside yourself. He's saying, this is something that comes from Jesus Christ. This is something that comes from Jesus Christ. And what you need to do is take a very good look at what's happened to him, and take a very good look at the fact that he says, I bundled you up in the same package, and your baptism is the mark of that. And you and I are called to reckon on it. Do you see? Reckon yourselves. I think there's an awful lot to be said here. What we reckon ourselves to be, we go an awful lot on how we feel. We go an awful lot on what voices say to us, little voices from within ourselves, little voices of Satan, little voices of the world around us. Actually, the voices from the world around us aren't little at all. They're very, 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 very strong. But Paul is saying, I don't want you to be basing your assessment on any of those things. I want you to base 
your understanding of yourself on what Christ has done and the fact that you're baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death and into his resurrection, that's who you are, that's where you are, that's what you are, and you've got to count on it. So that's number one thing. Think union with Christ. Get, we need to get that into our thinking. Uh, Calvinistic theology talks about total depravity. It says that sinners are as sinful as they can be. When we come to Christ, we are not in the same position that we were before. We have a new heart. We are born again. We are risen with Christ. Things have changed. Now, getting that subtlety, we're still sinners, but that's not the end of the story. We still sin, but we are in Christ. That's our fundamental reality, rather than being in Adam. So reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Number two is what we actively, how we actively respond to this. So verse 12, do not let reign sin in your mortal bodies so that you obey evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. So there's some things to not do. There's some things to reject and to refuse. And what he's saying is, you see, Christ is dead to sin. He doesn't respond to sin. He's not under the realm of sin in a very radical way. And you're in Christ, and therefore sin does not have the right to tell you what to do. Sin does not have the right to boss you around. And sin does not have the right to ask you to present yourself ready for sin's service by six o'clock sharp in the morning. That's how it used to be. But that's not how it is now. And the problem is we've got a habit, a habit of our own lives of sin, but more than that, we've actually got the habit of thousands or however many generations of humanity who have, because of Adam, presented themselves at six o'clock sharp, ready to serve sin every day. And that's quite a habit to break. And he says, count yourselves not part of that army, not part of that workforce. Do not let sin reign over you. So when sin says, where are you? Six o'clock, you should be sinning already. You say, sorry, I'm not part of your workforce anymore. You don't reign over me. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. But do offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. So he says there's a positive rejection, sorry, there's a rejection. No, I am not going to do that. No, I am not serving you. And there is a positive devotion. Yes, Lord, I am at your disposal. 
yes, Lord, whatever you want me to do. Uh, yes, Lord, you say it, and I'm ready to do it. Do you see? Offering ourselves as, as instruments, actually the word means weapons, I think, uh, offer yourselves to God, verse 13, as those who have been brought from death to life, and the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And he concludes this section with this saying, Sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. Because you are in this place of wonderful forgiveness, wonderful grace that gives what I don't deserve and pays me what Christ has earned and lets me go free. Because I'm in the place of wonderful grace, that is the place where sin does not rule. And we are told here to reckon on that and to staunchly refuse when sin says, Hey, wake up and serve me. But instead, on a daily basis, to say, Lord, I belong to you and I offer myself in your service all that I am, all that I have, Lord Jesus, I give it to you.